0: If you have your Bibles, please grab them or your app or whatever. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses of Matthew 21. Uh, We are officially one week out from Easter. Today, the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Um, And as you know, if you've been around here over the last few weeks, you know that we've been preparing ourselves for that by kind of following the last days of Jesus before the cross. So we, we've been in the upper room the last couple of weeks. We've noticed, we've watched how Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. Uh, we noticed how the, he, he, he foretold the denial that would be coming and he's witnessed the beginning of his own betrayal. Right, that's where we've been the last few weeks. And now today, because we are one week away, we want to rewind the tape just a little bit to Palm Sunday. So this is Jesus' triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem, the holy city. A very powerful text. Um, if you grew up around church, you've heard it many times on this particular Sunday. If you're newer to church, this text is probably newer to you. Uh, and so we want to say a very special welcome to you as always. Uh, classic text for today. Now sometimes... Especially as we've been working through some of our texts in Romans. But sometimes we have texts in front of us where we have an apostle or someone like that defending or articulating a certain doctrine or a point of theology. And so we kind of wrestle with the ideas around them. Other times, like today, we have a story. It's like an artist has kind of painted a picture on a canvas in front of us. And all we're asked to do this morning is look. So it's all I, want you to, I just want you to look. I want you to see the picture. We're a couple thousand years removed from what happened here. So we need to kind of use our imaginations and put ourselves in the story and imagine what it would have been like. So I want you to sit back, look, and I want you to see Jesus. And we're going to get into that. So let's read the story in front of us. Matthew 21, 1 to 11. If you have your text? Then we're going to pray uh, for God to give us eyes to see. And then we're going to jump into it. So have a look at Matthew 21, where Matthew writes this. He says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Father, first of all, we just want to thank you, God, for your, for your word. We want to thank you for your word and thank you for the work that you promised to do through it. And God, this morning, we just ask you that you would send your spirit among us to work powerfully and to change us in light of what we see here today. God, we do not, we do not want to just come in and go out and be left unchanged. God, we don't want to be hearers only, but we want to be doers of your word. So please help us. Lord, you know how weak you are, we are. And I thank you, God, that you, you know we are dust. And so today, God, we just put ourselves before you and ask you uh, for your help. I pray, Father, for those here who don't yet know you, would you draw them, draw them to yourself today, God. Allow them to see the fullness of what they desire and want from life is found in you. And I pray for your sons and daughters, God, all those here who are being made, conformed into your image. Would you just accelerate that process in us today, God? Lord, where we're refusing your kingship in our lives and your rule and your reign, would you convict us? Challenge us and remove those things from us, God. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me start by asking you a question. A question, an important question. Who is Jesus? Now, obviously, it's a big question. If you around here on a regular basis, we talk about Jesus a lot. So who he is really matters, but it's not actually a very easy question to answer because the truth is is there's a lot of competing information to try to answer that question for you that's out there in the world and even in here. For example, the majority of the people in our city, including probably some or many in this room, believe that Jesus was a, a historical figure, right? that he actually existed. There's not much debate. If you, if you study that, you'll see there's actually not much uh, debate among historians on that point today. So he existed, point A. B, people say, well, Jesus, you know, he was Gandhi-esque. A lot like Gandhi. He, He was an idealist. He wanted to see change. So he walked around with his message of change. And he declared to the people, you know, be the change you want to see. Right? Gandhi's very famous saying... That's who Jesus is. Others will say, yeah, he was even a good teacher. He was a philosopher. He was a revolutionary. He was a, you know, he was any one of those things. He was a good example for us to follow. Now, most of the people who are in that category would also say that to go too far beyond that would land you squarely in the realm of myth, fiction, and fairy tale. To believe much more than that about Jesus, I mean, you might as well be believing in Cinderella or Snow White. Right? You can, just, you can just make that leap. It's the same thing. Christians, on the other hand, say, yeah, Jesus was all those things. A philosopher, revolutionary, idealist. He was all those things. And the Bible also tells us that Jesus was fully God, fully man. That he actually came into the world to save his people from their sins by dying on the cross and being raised on the third day two really different stories, right? Those they couldn't, they couldn't be any more different almost. So who is Jesus? Who is he? Well, as I thought about this question, I, it, it occurred to me, what if we were forced or asked to answer, um, not with what we know, but, but with how, how we live our lives? Because here's the truth. For me, I can, I can do a decent job of telling you who Jesus is. I, I can do that. I've read the book. I can tell you who Jesus is, but here's the problem. If you watched every moment of my life, what I'm afraid of is that you would notice, I would notice inconsistency with what I actually could tell you about who Jesus is. And I know from speaking with many of, you that, many of you that I'm not alone in this. See, this is what we do. Oftentimes, Jesus, what we know about Jesus, who he is, gets reduced, gets diluted down to not who he is, to, but, but what we need from him. For example, if you're sick, Jesus becomes the one who can heal. If we're broke, Jesus is the one who provides. Right? If we need a job, Jesus is the one who can grease the wheels. And I know nobody here gambles, especially, you know, not with that, that, at the till, at the grocery store, which they've made it so easy now just to get your lotto ticket right there. But if you happen to come across a ticket and you're sitting there, Jesus happens to be the one who could just so easily line up the numbers for you. I mean, you would do good things with the money anyways, right? You would tithe on it, first of all, of course, right? You would give, and then you would, you would do good things with it. But Jesus is the one who can do that. But what happens If we reduce Jesus down to not who the Bible says he is, but to what we need from him, what happens? But what about when we're not in need of anything? Or what about when the things we want aren't things that Jesus wants for us? What happens when temptation hits? If you understand if who Jesus is is based on what we need, what happens when you're sitting there, you don't want Jesus and temptation strikes. What do you do? What do you do when that third and fourth and fifth beer looks really, really good? Or what do you do when you're tempted to prioritize work and ambition over family because it makes way more sense? Do we ask Jesus to get out of the way? Do we move him to the side? Or does he trump everything? Now, As I let those thoughts kind of just bounce around in my head the last few days, couple days, I was really convicted. I was really, really convicted about this because here's the thing. I want more than just a Jesus who's there to meet my needs. If you've been around Westside, you come in here week in, week out, and we hear the gospel, we hear who Jesus is. I want to be called to live in light of that. I don't want to be comforted and patted on the back when I come in here after another week of relegating Jesus to second or third place in my life. And I don't want to be told, you're doing a great job, just keep going. I don't want that. I want a faith that encompasses, eclipses my entire life, that compels me to change. That's what I want. That's what I want. And yet even though that's my desire, I find a constant struggle in my life to let Jesus rule and reign every area as king. It's a constant battle. I'm constantly at war with myself. But there's good news. Thank God, I mean, thank God. He has filled the Bible. The Bible is replete with stories of men and women who find desire in themselves but not the ability to carry it out. It's full, the Bible's full of it. So as we walk up to Easter, as we make this final week to Easter, each of us, each of us needs to be struck for the first time if you've never come to Jesus or again if you already have. We need to be struck with who Jesus is and it needs to change us. We have to change in light of it. See, God's not interested. He's, he's not interested in our traditions. He's not impressed. You know, he's not impressed with, with our baptisms that we're going to go downtown and do them on 420. You know, he's, not, he's not blown away by that. He's not. He wants to convict us, compel us, and change us. He wants us to surrender to his spirit. That's what he wants. He wants to lay our lives down. He is the king. So that's where we're going today. So this morning, we're going to walk through our story, that picture we talked about, and we're going to look at some of the reasons why it's so difficult to let Jesus rule as king in every area of our life. And we're going to close with the answer to our question that will change us if we simply believe it. So Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry of Jesus into the holy city. Roads lined with coats and palm branches. The people cheering and celebrating the arrival of their king. This picture is so right that it's easy for us to get it so wrong. I mean completely wrong. See, we need to be really careful with the text we have in front of us today. Because if we just read over this story quickly, we get a picture of a big celebration. People worshiping Jesus, Jesus as the guest of honor. You can imagine him smiling and waving to the crowds as he passes by. And we can celebrate that finally Jesus is getting the worship and the adoration that he deserves. Finally, the people have got the message. But that's actually not what was happening at all. So I want us to divide this story in front of us this morning into four different scenes. Four different acts kind of in the same play. Four pictures, and I've given each scene a title. So scene one, the walk. Scene two, the burden. Scene three, the worship. And scene four, the question. Each of the scenes is going to help us, help reveal Jesus in a unique light to us. And help us see why we don't always want to let him be who he is in our lives. So let's take them one at a time. Scene 1, the walk. If you look down at Matthew 21, verse 1, it refers to the walk very briefly when it says this. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives. What I want us to see here and what I want us to remember is that this moment in this story is the end of a progression. Right it's the end of Jesus progression toward Jerusalem. This walk toward the holy city began after Jesus had finished his ministry to the people of Galilee. In Matthew chapter 16, right that's that's when he that's when he, it says he turned his face toward Jerusalem and they began the walk. Now there's a lot that happened as they walked. Matthew gives 5 chapters to just this walk. Right he, he tells us that Jesus preached Jesus was transfigured and showed to be God to some of the disciples. Jesus healed. He told parables. Or he said to the little children, come to me. Right? Jesus sent away a rich young man who loved his money more than he loved him. There was a lot that went on on that walk. But there's only one aspect of it that I want us to just kind of zoom in on today. I want us to see the incongruity between the walk that Jesus was taking and the walk that his disciples thought they were on. See, the disciples, for them, this walk, this was a victory march into the center of power, right? This is the moment they'd invested their lives in, right? They were expecting and waiting for Jesus to finally show himself to all the people as the Messiah, as their king, this was the moment when finally the Roman occupiers would be expelled and Israel's security and prosperity would be restored. All right, That was the walk for the disciples. But that's a very different walk than the one Jesus was taking. For Jesus, this walk was extremely different, which is why he kept repeating over and over and over again to his disciples what this walk meant. I mean, beginning from the beginning of the walk to where we are now in Matthew chapter 21, he told them three times explicitly what was happening. But for whatever reason, they refused to hear him. The first time he told them is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Now in this particular instance, Peter, who we've seen is kind of one of the leaders of the disciples, Peter took it upon himself to rebuke Jesus. That rebuke, that word is is an angry word. Peter was angry with Jesus. Peter rebukes Jesus for being so stupid and saying such a ridiculous thing as that. That they were going to Jerusalem so that he would die. Peter had way too much invested in this walk for Jesus to be toying with it. The second time Jesus tried to explain what this trek to Jerusalem was all about is in Matthew 17, verse 22, which says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And then we read of the disciples' reaction. And they were greatly distressed. The last time Matthew records Jesus telling his disciples exactly what was about to happen before they entered the city is found in Matthew 20 verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. Now, he's told them over and over again what's happening. They still don't get it. They're refusing to hear him. So now, he takes these guys aside. He says, guys, please hear me. Please. He takes them aside and said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. As we imagine the first scene of our story, we need to see a couple of things. First, we need to see a man desperately, I mean, desperately trying to explain to those closest to him what he's going through, what's happening. We need to see a man carrying a burden that would ultimately crush him and yet being totally and completely alone in it. We need to see and we need to feel the mounting stress of Jesus as he walks alone in this group of men. He knew what they wanted from him. He knew exactly what they wanted from him. He knew they misunderstood what he was doing. And no matter how many times he repeated the truth, their ears were closed to it. In scene one, act one of our story, we see Jesus desperately, completely, unequivocally alone. As I was just picturing this and trying to wrap my head around that, I, I just could imagine the psalmist words being just spoken from by Jesus and, and prayed to the Father. I mean, he would have he would have known the entire Old Testament if not had it memorized. So these words would have been just near and dear to his heart. And never would they have been more true. For example, Psalm 73 verse 25. Imagine Jesus just praying, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Think about the psalms we used to comfort ourselves when we go through difficult times. Even the ones we say to little children like Psalm 23. Imagine Jesus afraid, anxious, alone, and reciting these same psalms. Imagine his forehead just wrinkled and his head in his hands. These men will not hear him. And quietly passing through his lips, he's saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Never, never has that psalm had so much meaning. This is Jesus on the road. God himself with no one and nothing to lean on except his father in heaven. Some of you can relate to that. So that's the first thing we need to see is just Jesus. Jesus. The second is the disciples and their refusal to walk with Jesus as they walked with Jesus. See, for them, there was an entirely different purpose behind this trip to the city. There was a very tangible reason these men had left everything behind them and were following Jesus. So when Jesus kept on bringing up the fact that he was going to die, man, they just felt like he was flipping the script on them. He was destroying what they were giving their lives to. I mean you can feel their pain. They refuse to let the ramifications of what Jesus was saying to let that sink in. But let me ask us, you and me. What about us? Do do you ever think about the fact that you too are on a walk with Jesus that we just like the disciples are going from point A to point B? and that Jesus has an ultimate purpose, that we're going somewhere? I mean, have you let that sink in, the fact that Jesus, as king, is coming back for his bride, the church? He's coming again, not as a baby, but as a judge. I mean, does that affect your life? Does that change your life? Do you live in light of that? Are you walking with Jesus in that way? I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that the next time we see him will be the way Revelations 19 describes him? It says this, then I saw heaven opened. Now that's gonna be an amazing day. We wake up in Vancouver, the heavens open. It's gonna be a big deal. And behold, a white horse That's who we're going to see face to face. Now let me ask you, are you living in light of that? Are you letting that sink in? Do you hear his call to give everything you are, everything you have, and everything you will ever be for that? Are you obedient to that call? Or do we walk more like the disciples? Just saying, Jesus, that's great. I really like your story. I really appreciate the imagery. Thank you. But don't forget, Jesus. I mean, let's not take our eye off the ball here, right? Because people expect a lot from you. We we're gonna get there, but we have some of our own plans too, right? Between now and then. So let's just take care of the stuff we're thinking of first, and then we'll get to that. Often we reject Jesus' reign in our lives because we refuse to accept his ultimate purpose. All right, so finally the walk. The walk is nearly over. Our scene's about to change from the walk to the burden. Jesus and his disciples are now outside the city. Grab your Bible, please. Turn to Matthew 21. Have a look down at it. Second half, verse 1 to verse 7. Let me read it for you. It says, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. And then there's a lot in here, right? I mean, the fact that Jesus knows what's going to happen before it happens, that's amazing. The fact that Jesus is once again claiming divinity, that's pretty incredible too. The fact that this is another fulfillment of ancient scriptures that prophesied about the Messiah coming. But there's a picture that I just couldn't get out of my head as I just read this over a few times this week. It's, it's the moment, it's the moment that God himself and fleshed the divine word, the moment that Jesus just swings his leg over that colt. I just see it in slow motion. I mean, imagine Jesus kind of hiking up his robe. I don't know how he did that. Brought up his robe, swings his leg over the colt. What was he thinking? What was going through his mind at that moment? Because he knew this was the moment this moment that the king arrives in the holy city to save his people, this moment had been waited on for thousands of years. This moment had been prophesied and promised to the patriarchs. This is the moment. So picture Jesus, the divine word sitting on this insignificant, lowly, slow colt. The king of the entire universe arrived in humility as Zechariah 9 told us he would. Now, Oftentimes we make a lot of the colt, and that's not bad, but we have to recognize that often kings entered cities on donkeys. Uh, That was a sign of them coming in peace. But there's more going on here with this animal than than just merely humility and peace. See, there's no mistake that the colt is mentioned and called a beast of burden. See, this animal existed to do menial work, right? Move this heavy pile of, of wood or whatever, from here to there. Move loads from point A to point B. And on that day, that animal bore the heaviest load the entire universe has ever known. On that day, that colt bore the weight of one who was bearing the weight of the world's sin. The heaviest burden that we could ever imagine. So I want you to picture Jesus on the colt. His eyes set in front of him. His heart is heavy. He's weighed down and yet he's moving forward towards the cross where he knows it will be the will of the Father to crush him. I can just see the disciples. I can just see them looking at the face of Jesus and then looking around each other like, what's his problem? Why isn't he enjoying this? Why why is he celebrating with us? This is what we've wanted the whole time. Why are his eyes so steely and locked on the road in front of him? You know, we often want to make much of the fact that Jesus went to parties and turned water into wine and that kind of thing. And he seems to have a sense of humor at a number of places in scripture. That's that's great. That's good. That's true. But we can't forget the way that Isaiah 53 describes him. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is how Jesus is described. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, a man bearing a burden. Sadly, that's not a popular descriptor. That's not real attractive to us. We want, we want our leaders to be really charismatic and to be, con- you know, to be conquerors, to rise above their circumstances, to kind of be really positive and excited and attractive to us. That's what we want from our leaders. But Jesus is bearing this weight, this load. His heart is heavy. See, at times, the disciples rejected Jesus for exactly that. For his humility. In the upper room, when Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet, we looked at it a few weeks ago, and Peter says to him, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. He says that. He says that because he'd invested so much in Jesus, that for Jesus to act like a slave instead of act like a king was destroying everything Peter had based his life on. So he says, Jesus, get off the floor. Stop acting like a slave. You are embarrassing me. It's not just Jesus' purposes that we reject. We often reject the person of Jesus. So we've seen scenes one and two, the walk and the burden, which leads to our third scene, the worship. Have a look at your text, Matthew 21, verses eight to nine. Let me read them for us. Most of the crowd, Matthew writes, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now this has got, I mean it's got to be one of the most misleading pictures in all the gospels. It has to be. Because here we have the king being worshipped as the king. The king being worshipped as the king in the right place at the right time for the right thing. And yet these worshippers have it all wrong. The crowd that today is yelling, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Literally, Jesus, save us. Jesus, save us now. This same crowd will in a matter of days be yelling, crucify him. So what went wrong? What happened? See, Jesus knows. Jesus knows that the crowd is going to turn on him. The burden has not left the back of our Lord. As the people worship him, I just see his eyes filled with compassion and with love for them and also with pain at the road that's still ahead. See, the people laid down their cloaks on the road. This was a sign of homage paid only to a king. The people cut branches and laid them palm branches down on the road too and that was a sign of victory for the Jewish nation. I don't think Jesus was angry. I don't think that at all. I don't think he was angry with these men, women, and children. No, I think this is again just like Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, looking into the eyes of these men who think they understand, they think they get it. But Jesus knows in a matter of hours, you will deny me. He knows. This crowd, just like Peter, is declaring that they would die for their king before they would deny him. But Jesus knows the emptiness of these words and gestures. He knows how fleeting they are, how fickle they are. And again, we see Jesus alone in the middle of this crowd. His disciples, though, are loving it, right? I mean, they never expected in their wildest dreams to be at the center of this moment. And so they're waving, they're soaking it all in. I mean, this is fame, if there ever was fame in that time. But what I really want us to see is that Jesus marched to the cross in the middle of this empty worship of a people who have other plans for him. This demonstrates to us that the anchor point of his love for us is deeper than what we offer him. See, Jesus didn't continue on the cross. He didn't keep going because this people was worshiping him rightly. And we kept going because this people was worshiping him wrongly. And he knew, he knew the only way the only way to give them what they truly wanted. He knew the vast majority of that crowd and his disciples would turn from him, would deny him as he went to the cross. In fact, because he went to the cross, this act of love would cost him everything and he did it anyway. See, the crowd wanted Jesus to save them. Jesus would save them. The crowd wanted Jesus to free them from slavery and Jesus would free them from slavery. The crowd wanted Jesus to make them right with God. Jesus would accomplish exactly that. But what the crowd did not want was the cross. They didn't want the cross and yet Jesus refused to avoid it. It's the moment he swings his leg over that colt. He's refusing to avoid it. The cross was the only way to give these people and the rest of mankind what they truly hunger and thirst for. And So so he went, swung his leg over that colt and kept going. See, scene three shows us Jesus enduring the worship of a people who are expecting him to be someone else or at least to do something else. He's enduring it. You know, which shows us, as I thought about it, the third reason that we often reject Jesus' kingship over all of our lives. We don't like his plans. We like where he's going. Maybe we, we like the destination, but we don't like how he says we have to get there. We don't like being told that we have to lose our lives in order to find our lives. We don't like being told to love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't like being told that to walk as a disciple means you have to give everything. So let me ask you, do you worship Jesus as he is or as you'd prefer him to be? I mean, have you really investigated who your king is? Have you opened up the Bible to say, okay, Jesus, who are you? Because I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Or do you just worship the popular opinions of Jesus that float around and change with the wind? Because there's a lot of them. Have you looked in here to find out who is Jesus? And then how do I worship him? Him? His purposes, his person, his plans. All of them can test. All of them can test whether or not we really believe if he is who he said he is. Which leads us to our fourth and final scene, the question. Have a look at Matthew 21 again, verses 10 to 11. Our last two verses, and he says, Matthew writes, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. After all that's happened, the city's faced with a question. I mean, the whole city faced with a question. It's the question we opened with. It's the question that this whole book just seeks to answer, Who is Jesus? Who is He? Who's Jesus? That's the question. I mean, who were the people worshiping that day? Jesus of Nazareth? Maybe. A prophet? Possibly. A king? Well, man, they certainly hope so. The word of God himself in flesh to bear the sins of the world? No. Not him. This is the question that will change everything for every one of us in this room. Thousands of years later, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? So if you're here today, your faith is not yet in Jesus, and I don't care if you've been in church your whole life, but if you don't follow him as king, if you don't live as his disciple and worship him the way he's called us to, then you can put your faith in Jesus today. Today. You can be remade, reborn. If he's God, Lord, King, Savior, brother, friend, if that's who Jesus is to you, you will be remade in his image. You are being remade. That's the the work of your life. That's what he's doing. But if Jesus is merely example, teacher, philosopher, idealist, then all you are today is all you will ever be and even that will be taken from you. So today, today, those of us who have not, we can put our faith in Jesus. If you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the rest of us, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the only God, the true king of the universe who is right now seated, ruling and reigning on his throne today. We need to confess and we need to repent. And I promise you, please hear me, I have been confessing and repenting all week myself. I know it doesn't matter to you, but I just want you to know that we're all in this. We need to confess, repent, and turn from the areas that we have sought to rule our own lives instead of Jesus. And we need to let our king be king. We need to submit to his purposes, his person, and his plans. There's no other way, there's no other option to live as Jesus' disciples. He gave us no other route. That's my heart for you. That's my prayer for myself, my prayer for you, As well, would you let me pray for us? Father, thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for your spirit that convicts and that is alone powerful enough to change us, God. I just ask for that, Lord. As I've been asking and praying this morning and throughout this time, God, would you change us, please? I want to be different, Lord. I want to live differently, And I know my brothers and sisters have the same desire, God. Yet we don't find the ability in ourselves to change. So we need your spirit, Lord. And I pray too for those here who are putting their faith in you today or who have yet to do that. God, would you just continue to draw them to let them see you and let them see themselves in light of you. Jesus, we love you. We need you more than we could ever express Thank you that you continued, you got on that colt, you continued down the road, you, you died on the cross, and thank you that you rose from the dead. Thank you, Jesus. This is in your name that we pray. Amen. Would you rise with me, please, as we go into a time of response?